Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. All right, we're in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 12 through 18. Just a couple of quick things before we actually get started. And you say, no, 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 you're up there. It started. Clock's going. <laughs> Uh, no, it hasn't. Not even close. Um, so Philippians, the book of Philippians, again, writing to a church, a group of people in the city of Philippi, writing to a group of people who uh, at present, when they receive the letter, are under intense persecution, meaning they aren't being killed in the streets or necessarily incarcerated for long periods of time, but are under significant cultural pressure. Uh, the city of Philippi was an important city in the Roman uh, Empire, and because of the nature of this city becoming a part of the Roman Empire, anybody born in this city was considered automatically a Roman citizen. And as a part of that, the Roman uh, secularists, I should say, the non-believers, would genuinely, gen generally, I should say, uh, participate in worship of the emperor. And this was routinely done in many cities in Rome, but in the city of Philippi, this was a big deal. This was a... Uh, this was a serious deal. To be a citizen of Rome in the city of Philippi was to worship the emperor, which at the time of the writing of the book was a guy named Nero. And so a lot of the book of Philippians is recognizing believers as having their primary citizenship in heaven, and their, their object of their worship is Christ, not the emperor, in contrast uh, with the emperor. And, and Paul here is challenging the believers to live their life in recognition of what is to come. He wants them to live their life in recognition of what is to come. So let me explain that. When we receive salvation, when we understand salvation, we experience salvation in a couple of different ways. Number one, we experience salvation at that moment when the Spirit captures our heart and we believe. We call that the moment of our salvation. Maybe, maybe the moment of our conversion, that moment where we said, okay, I believe, I need Jesus to forgive me and we receive salvation that's something that has happened for a believer sometime in their past it doesn't happen over and over again at some point in our past we can recall maybe uh, a time where we said okay I, I believe and need the Lord for forgiveness of my sins so that's a part of our that's our salvation that's one of the ways we experience our salvation but there's another way we experience our salvation that's the the day in day out life with Jesus in a world that doesn't acknowledge him so we live as Christians in a world that doesn't acknowledge him. We live as Christians in a body that is still tainted with sin. So one of the other ways we experience salvation is the day in and day out. What does it mean to live for Jesus in this world and in this life today? And that's a, 
a part of our salvation. We're living out our life in Christ. There's one last part of our salvation that those of us here have not yet experienced, and that's the glory of Christ, the glory we will receive in Christ where we finally step across the threshold into his presence. So we experience our salvation at the moment of conversion. We experience our salvation day in and day out walking with Christ, and someday we will experience the glory of our salvation with Christ in person. Paul has this in mind as he's writing these words, and he's saying, I want you to live your life recognizing your life goes on forever. So I I put it this way. It's the title of the message, Eternal Life Today. Eternal Life Today. Here's what I want you to think about. When you think about eternal life, do you think, I'm a Christian, so someday I'm going to heaven? Well, that's a part of your eternal life. The other part of your eternal life is right now. Eternal life has begun. The question is, what does it mean to live today in this world, in this city, in this fallen body, knowing my life is eternal? What is eternal life for the believer today look like? Well, a couple of ideas. Look at verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read them again. It's because I feel like it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence... But much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. First thing, eternal life today is a life of obedience. Eternal life today is a life of obedience. If you plan a trip, you will likely think, what do I need to pack? So if you're planning a camping trip, you will pack something to sleep in, maybe a tent, maybe a sleeping bag. If you're planning a trip to the beach, you will want to take a beach towel and some sunscreen. If you're planning a trip to go fishing, you're probably going to want to take your fishing tackle and a fishing pole. So when you're planning where you are going, you are going to plan what you're going to pack based on where you are going. Where are we as Christians going? We are going to eternity with Christ. What should I be packing knowing I am going to live with Christ forever? The first thing that goes into the bag is obedience because that is what we will be doing forever in glory and he's saying let's pack for our journey knowing where our journey is going therefore my beloved as you have always or i should say as you have always obeyed not only in my presence but now much more in my absence eternal life today is a life of obedience because we know the destination of where our life is going the life of a christian is living our life knowing where we're not going, not saying, someday I'm going to heaven, I better get all the fun stuff in now. What he is calling us to do is to live our life knowing where we are going. What does a life that anticipates heaven look like? What does a life that anticipates heaven look like? Well, think of the Lord's Prayer. Not my will, but yours be done on earth What's the next phrase? As it is in heaven. And usually we pray that prayer hoping somebody else will get it. Lord, your will be done in that person's life because if they would finally get how to live a Christian life, it sure would make my life a lot more convenient. But that prayer is primarily a personal prayer. Lord, your will be done on earth, meaning in my heart and life, just as it is in heaven. So the life that anticipates heaven is a life that is spent asking, what is God's will, and how do I obey that? 
obedience in the Bible is a very, very simple thing to understand. Are you ready? Obedience is simply doing the things God wants you to do and not doing the things God does not want you to do. Now, let's say on the face of it, let's just acknowledge this together, you are lousy at that. The ones laughing agree. Because <laughs> Anyway, didn't we just sing a song, Seth? My sins are a whole bunch, but your mercy is more. That is not a past, sin, that is not a past tense song. You and I need that song today, not because we used to sin really bad in college or when we were in the service. We sinned really bad Thursday. But we still have to acknowledge what obedience is. We recognize our sin, but we must acknowledge eternal life today is a life of obedience where I recognize what is God's will. He wants me to say no to anger and selfishness and envy and lust and drunkenness and say no to all those things again when they come up again. And he wants me to say yes to Christ's ways, which is loving others more than myself, serving other people's interests more than my own interests, looking to further the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of self. And obedience is not doing these things to curry favor with God. Doing these things is a way of offering worship to God because we have favor with God through Jesus. Jesus forgives us of all of our sin, and because he was so kind to do that, we worship him by turning our life over to him in obedience. So eternal life today is a life of obedience, not to earn favor with God, but rather as an effort to worship God because we love him. We have to recognize something, though, about the context of this verse. Although as individuals we receive salvation by faith, meaning I get saved when I believe by the work of the Spirit, I can't save you by believing for you, we are saved as individuals by faith, we are saved as individuals into a body of believers. And although it's not explicit in most of our translations, we should recognize this. The call to eternal life through obedience is anticipated to be a function of community. This isn't calling us to obedience when we're home alone. He's calling us to obedience as we come together as a body of believers. We're saved into a people the question we're supposed to ask ourselves, since I am a part of God's people, what does obedience look like in relational community with others? Obedience means I have to forgive when others offend me. Obedience means I have to let go of resentment when I carry resentment. Obedience means when I have my own, my own concerns and my own preferences, I set those aside instead to serve the preferences of others. Obedience is not what do I get out of something, but obedience is... What do I do to make sure somebody else gets something out of this coming together as a body of believers? This call to obedience through eternal life is a call to obedience as a body of believers together. It should inform how we relate with one another uh, over and over again as a body of believers. Because eternal life will not be you in heaven alone. Eternal life will be you in heaven with the body of believers. Now some of you just got really disappointed. You didn't realize that. We're all going with you. May as well get warmed up to it now. Okay. So eternal life is a life of obedience. Look, at, look uh, some more at the end of verse 12. This verse is challenging yet hopeful. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is what one author says about this verse. This is not telling us how to get saved. 
This verse is not telling us how to stay saved. We stay saved because Jesus is awesome. This Bible, this verse is telling us how we live having been saved. Having been saved, how then should my life be lived? My life as a Christian, not to stay a Christian or become a Christian, my life as a believer is informed by working out my salvation. What does the forgiveness of Christ in my life look like when it's extended to you? What does humble uh, uh, service of Christ to me look like when I extend that to others? What does it mean to receive the grace of Christ and then to have that grace not reside in me as a reservoir, but pass through me as a, a channel of God's grace? What does it look like to take everything Christ has given me and see how quickly I can give it away? Grace, love, forgiveness, humility, service, carrying a cross, enduring suffering, experience the joy of the Spirit, sharing the gospel. These are all things Christ has done to us. And in us, we then ask, how do I work out all of those things into the life of others? And we mentioned it this last week, and it's worth mentioning again for those who aren't with us. We discover in the book of Philippians that the goal of our salvation is not us. We are not the end of our salvation. Christ, in the end, is the one who receives glory for our salvation, and he receives it primarily when our salvation benefits others. Let me say that again because you weren't listening. He is glorified primarily when our salvation benefits others. Do you realize that your Bible reading this week may not have been to inspire you to have a good day? That your Bible reading this week might have been for someone else? They don't know. No, no, that's not how it works. Oh, really? Well, you can talk to Jesus about that. It's between you and him. It just might be the growth in my life is not to make my life better, not to give me more peace, not to give me more happiness. It just might be God is doing a work in my life in order to benefit somebody else. It is highly likely that God is doing a work in your life primarily to benefit someone as that grace passes through you. The joy is we also receive the benefit of our salvation as we work out our salvation. The word work is a very complicated word. No, it's not. It just means do it. This is not complicated. You're not earning it. Jesus is gracious, but it does mean get up and do something. It does mean you won't know the Bible if you don't crack it open. It does mean you won't, won't know it if you try and read it once and get frustrated. It does mean in order to extend forgiveness to others, I am going to have to actually work at that either in my own heart or actually having the conversation. It may mean that to confess my sin, I may need to acknowledge how I have hurt and offended others or actually acknowledge with Christ that my life is broken and it needs fixed. It may mean I need to recognize that I'm not as right as I thought I was. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure so while we engage in activity the theological word for that is work to participate with christ in our growing with him it is 100 percent god's work in us when we experience growth when you experience growth in the lord it's not because you are so disciplined to read your bible although i would suggest 
it is going to be hard to grow in Christ without reading your Bible. But when we experience that growth, it's not a function of our discipline. It's a function of the grace of Christ. Maybe I could argue it this way. There are plenty of people who read their Bible a lot and either aren't growing or aren't even saved. It is only Christ who will bring about growth in our life. And you say, well, that seems unfair. You don't want to ask God for fairness. We are thankful he isn't fair with us, aren't we? Thank God. He saved us, and that's not fair. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is, now, now this bothers us, I know. Maybe it doesn't bother you. It bothers me. It means God gets to decide what happens in your life even when you are seeking to follow him. Fear and trembling in the Bible is not a bad thing where we recognize God is in charge. Like he is totally in charge. And it's not fear like terror you would fear about coming home into a dark house and finding a clown hiding in it. It's not that kind of fear. It's a... It's a recognition that God is God, and he will do whatever he wants. Everything he does is good. We must recognize that, but we have to recognize, man, he is really, really big. And, and sometimes when he, he decides to do something in our life, he doesn't consult with our top ten list of desires. And sometimes he does things in our life that are really, really inconvenient. And that fear and trembling is just a recognition I don't even get to be in charge of my own spiritual growth. Now, I know some of you are bothered by that. That bothers you a little bit. You're like, well, no, if I read my Bible and pray and share the gospel every now and then and have a good attitude, I'm going to grow in the Lord. Yes, you will, but not because of those things. You will because Jesus is just that kind to you. So when he calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's not the fear and trembling of, um, uh, a group of people who think God has to be appeased. You've got to appease God with a sacrifice, otherwise he'll be really upset with me. This is a fear and trembling that recognizes God is God, and we go to the altar of our life and say, God, it's yours. I, I want to serve you through obedience and daily worship, and we extend our life to him, and even though we trust him and we know he's good, in some senses our hands shake a little bit because we don't know what he's up to, and we don't know what he might do. And, and that's where that fear and trembling comes. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God empowers you. God gives you his grace to grow in him. And we are called to worship him through obedience. Eternal life today is a life of obedience. God empowers us for obedience. And over time, we actually learn to desire to want to obey where he does a work in our heart, where a desire for obedience uh, grows and grows. Okay, eternal life today is a life of obedience, and second, eternal life today is a life of harmony. Let's read verses 14, 15, and 16 again, if you don't mind. This is what it says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Eternal life is a life of obedience. As we mentioned before, eternal life is a life of obedience among the people of God, which is this. Eternal life today is a life of harmony. 
a life of harmony. In pro football, the quarterback throws the ball and the receiver receives the ball. It does not matter how good the quarterback is or how good the receiver is. If the quarterback doesn't throw it where the receiver is, he won't be able to catch it. They have got to be on the same page in terms of where they are going. And what God is calling us to do is be together on the same page with what the plan is. Obedience in the people of God, obedience among the people of God is just simply this. Harmony where we recognize the unity we have together because of what Jesus did for all of us. It's harmony and unity where we recognize how much grace we have received. And I will offer you grace as well because I I see how much I needed. I can offer you even just a little bit. Look at verse 14. It's a command. Are you ready? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Which of the things can we do while grumbling and disputing? None of the things can be done with grumbling and disputing. All of the things should be done without grumbling and disputing. I'm saying that several ways so you'll finally get what I'm saying. Where is the place for grumbling and disputing in the body of Christ? There isn't. But sometimes there really needs to be something that needs to be said. Right. So you need to figure out if it's grumbling or disputing. Because some things that need to be said are challenging things, difficult things, and they're not grumbling or disputing. So now that we've covered the .001% of the things, let's talk about the other 99.9% of the things which are grumbling and disputing. None of the things in the body of Christ... Now, so what's the big deal? It's just because we all want to get along. We just, so this means I need to just sit on my concerns, just keep my mouth shut. No, that's not what it's saying. Open your mouth, but don't let it be grumbling and disputing. But look how much is on the line. This is unbelievable. Look at what he says. He wants us to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, living as lights in the world. This is fantastic. This frees us from something that many of, Christian, many of us Christians are so worried about. We think we have to keep our nose clean in the world so that we shine as lights in the world. We have to do none of the naughty things so that we can be salt and light to the world, so they can look on us and see the joy of Christ. Guess what? That's not what it's talking about. To be a light, what are we supposed to do according to this passage? Do all of the things without grumbling and disputing. So this is what's incredible. As Christians, we've done a great job telling the world how they're supposed to live as non-Christians, which is crazy. But nonetheless, we tell the world, this is what you're supposed to do to be a good person. We come to church and say we can't be good people. But world, this is what you're supposed to be to do be good people and, and follow our example. And, and then we don't do a real good job of even being good examples of that. But that's not even what the Bible says. What the Bible says is let's be lights to the world where a group of people who should never get together for any other reason get together and they hang out without grumbling and disputing. That should shine a light to the world. They go, what is wrong with those people? None of those people should be getting along. None of those people should be... I don't understand how that group of people would get together in one room and have unity and harmony of heart and no grumbling or disputing. That's a light to the world. The world looks at that and says, I don't understand how you're doing that. I might suggest, nobody, no, the present company excluded, except for that one guy, and I won't tell you, I won't use your name. I'm kidding. I'm, I don't really mean that. Um, we do a good job showing the world our light through holy living, 
we do a poor job, but we try, and then we grumble and dispute, and we fight, and we argue, and, and the world doesn't see any light. The issue is, can we live together in such a way that we set aside our petty differences, our petty preferences, the little things that don't matter, and just offer forgiveness and grace and, and, and live in harmony together? That's what eternal life today is supposed to look like, where a group of people set aside their own preferences and in humble service serve one another. And you say, well, how is the world going to see that? Well, they see the opposite, so they're going to see the unity. When a body of believers finally has unity of cause, and it's around the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at the uh, verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud to have not run in vain. What is the word of life? The word of life is simply the gospel. How do you know you have a relationship with God? You have a relationship with God because you put your faith in Christ to bring you forgiveness. So we hold fast to the word of the gospel. Why do we have to hold fast to the word of the gospel? Why do we have to hold fast to Christ? Because over and over again in our Christian life, we're going to feel like we're not in Christ. Sometimes we'll do something we regret, and we'll say, there's no way Jesus could love a person like me. Anybody ever said that? No way Jesus could be into somebody like me. Okay, guess what? There is no reason for him to be other than the gospel, where Jesus humbled himself to serve someone like you and me. So we hold fast to the word of life day in and day out when we say there's no reason he should love someone like me and the gospel says, but he does love somebody like you. We hold fast to the word of life when other people around us do things which are annoying, frustrating, angering, cause resentment and difficulty. We hold fast to the word of life because we say to ourselves, I'm going to forgive them when they finally say sorry and mean it. I'm going to forgive them when they finally make restitution. I'm going to forgive them when they walk around with a pouty face long enough and I I know that they finally get it. That's not holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life says, I've received so much grace from Christ, I can afford to give grace to this person. I've received so much forgiveness from Christ, I I can afford to give forgiveness to this person. Now some of us are saying, well, but what if I forgive them and they take advantage of it? Now, you shouldn't let yourself be abused. We should understand good and healthy boundaries. However, with that said, we must recognize we take advantage of Christ. We don't do it on purpose, but the fact is we do take advantage of his grace. And what does he do when we take advantage of his grace? You want some more? And so recognizing that, even when others take a long time to figure their stuff out, we can continue to offer mercy and grace to others around us. Eternal life is a life of harmony. That harmony is fueled by each of us connecting so closely with Christ we can afford to uh, share grace with one another. The world recognizes unity in a different way. Usually in the world, uh, unity is determined by a sense of commonality or shared interests. You will join a club or a fraternal organization or Something else where we say, I have something in common with these people. We hang out together because we, we hunt together, we work out together, or we, we cook together, or do crafts together, or we uh, uh, have a fantasy football team together. Of course, at the end of that season, you won't be friends anymore, but, but it was good, good while it lasted. There is commonality and unity when there is when there's shared interest and mutual benefit. Mutual benefit, meaning sometimes in a, 
in a worldly community, I'm going to bear costs, but I know over time I'm going to, one, going to be the one who receives benefit. Christian unity is fundamentally different where we recognize our unity is afforded by Christ's crucifixion. It is not because it's mutually beneficial. It may never be beneficial. We receive our benefit not from unity, but from Christ. The unity we have and commonality we have is extending grace to one another. It's very different than worldly unity. Recognizing this is in the scripture, unity in the body of Christ is intended to bring people together who don't necessarily have commonality outside of Christ. And he says to hold fast to Christ because this is significantly challenging to do. Life in the body of Christ that is informed by a life of harmony might be said this way, and I'll move to the last section with this. Being in the body of Christ is not about getting what we want. It's more about getting what we don't want so others do. Unity in the body of Christ, if I want to look at my motives, is not primarily about being about a, a part of a body of believers, a home group, a Sunday school class, a, a church meeting like this, or any other group of believers you might gather together with. It's not primarily about getting what I want. The question is more, how do I not get what I want to ensure others' interests are served? Eternal life is a life of obedience. Eternal life is a life of harmony. Finally, eternal life is a life of rejoicing. Look at verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Eternal life is a life of rejoicing. That is a recognition of what Christ has done for us today. Sometimes you watch reality TV shows. No, of course I don't. No, I do. You have a group of people that are part of this uh, reality TV show, which if you don't know, they're not really. But anyway, and they're going to have to live together for a period of time. And some of these shows, they, they live in, in a home together for a period of time. It's a really nice home. You've noticed on these reality TV shows, and I, I know you're acting like you don't watch them. That's fine. Um, whenever they open the fridge, there's food in it. And... And all they're doing is stuff that you and I normally do on vacation, right? And so what's interesting is these folks go to this place, this location, this big house, this uh, uh, TV studio, and they're there for weeks, maybe even months at a time, depending on how long they're on the show. And everybody's pretty happy because they get to live in pretty well-appointed situations. Got nice rooms, a mansion to live in. And, and this is despite the fact that during this period of time, they're away from their other life, their family and their friends that they know at home. So on the one hand, they're away from all the things that they are care about and concerned about. On the other hand, they're kind of happy because this is kind of cool. There's some joy. And eternal life today is a life of rejoicing where we recognize what we really want. Glory with Christ hasn't come yet. But we also recognize that what he has given us is really good. So until the time when he does come or until the time when we do go home, we should recognize the blessing Christ has given us through the gospel. Paul says it this way, even if I am poured out as a drink offering, I will rejoice. Paul is recognizing how God has blessed his life to serve the community of believers, even if he has poured out like a drink offering. Now, what's a drink offering? In the Old Testament, there's lots of different offerings. Uh, there was a burnt offering. 
uh, there was a, a wave offering where the group of the church would get in and, then, and one would start on this end and they would do a not that at all it would it's kind of a weird offering but they would actually wave the meat into heaven and then the priest would go eat it and I thought well that's cool um, there's a grain offering there's a drink offering. drink offering is where the wine is taken poured at the base of the altar what's interesting about the drink offering and this is what Paul is getting at it's a total waste all the other offerings men most of the offerings were eaten but even the burnt offering at least offered the smoke up and a scent to it the drink offering is total waste you may pour, pour it out on the ground Nobody gets to drink it. Nobody gets to smell it. Just pour it out on the ground. It's total waste. And this is what Paul is saying. Even if my life serving you is a drink offering, I mean, it seems in this time just to be a total waste, I will rejoice because it is a blessing to live eternal life today by being poured out. The joy of his life in Christ is the goal, and the joy he has with Christ is, outshines the momentary difficulty of serving others. The joy he has of knowing Christ uh, outshines the momentary suffering of serving others. I I love this, uh, how he says this. He says, I love you guys so much. Serving you is like having my life poured out as a total waste. Isn't that nice? You see that in a greeting card. Ten-year anniversary. Dear honey, I love you. And serving you has taken my life from what I thought was nice, well-appointed, to being like a drink offering, poured out in a total waste. See, you're offended by that. Nobody would write that in an anniversary card. Some of you are going, I shouldn't have written that in an anniversary card. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't help you, bro. That's it's on you. Um, he is saying, but this is what he's saying. He's saying, my life to you has no immediate benefit. You've got to think about this because as, as Westerners, we're programmed to do this with this expected outcome. This expected outcome doesn't occur. Something's wrong. This verse removes that from the body of Christ. The expected outcome is eternity. And what we do to serve one another is, is we serve each other pouring out our life as a drink offering. You say, well, I serve that. He, he didn't even appreciate what I did. I put that time in. I didn't get a thank you card. I went, I went there and I led the class and, and, and everybody seemed casually disinterested and they didn't show up. It doesn't work. Paul is not talking about working. He's not talking about effectiveness. He's not talking about outcomes. He's not talking about processes. He's talking about taking everything he is, hopes for, dreams, goals, and saying, I don't need any of that stuff. I'll pour it out as a total waste, as a recognition that serving you doesn't need payback. I don't need a return because my joy is rooted in the reality of Christ one day. Eternal life is a life of rejoicing because my rejoicing isn't rooted in something I need in this moment. Even if your growth in Christ costs you everything, we will have joy because we have Christ. And we discover in that moment it hasn't really cost us anything. Jesus is gained when we serve with our whole life, and so we have received all we really need. Heaven is certain, and Jesus is our joy. The joy we receive from Christ in context of the community is primarily experienced not when Jesus gives me everything I want, but when I, like Christ, serve your interests, and when you, like Christ, serve others' 
interests. Some of us think, I'm going to be able to serve others in joy when God finally gives me enough to do it. That's not how it works. We experience joy when we pour our life out, even when we don't know where the resource is going to come from. We serve others even when we don't know how we can do it. The joy we have together is done through pouring our life out. See, some of we hold the cup of our life and we say, I'm going to pour it out when I finally have enough. So it's a quick question, when are you going to have enough? Well, you're never going to have enough. So pour it out and keep Jesus. What does it look like in my life to serve my family by pouring out my life? What does it look like at work to serve my employee and my employers by pouring out my life? What does it look like to be a body of believers where I recognize the goal is not to be served but to serve? And what happens when that occurs? In the body of believers, when you get a group of people who come together in harmony to serve one another, you get rejoicing. You get gladness. You get shared ministry one to another where we invest and share in one another's lives sacrificially. There's a story in the Old Testament where David was sitting around and he was running for his life as he did for, it seemed like, most of his life. And he said, oh, I'm so thirsty. I wish I could have a drink from the well in Bethlehem. You know, anybody drink from the well in Bethlehem? It is so good. Trust me. Um, well, that was a well he remembered, and it was the well he had drank when he was a kid, and he knew just what it tasted like. You know, you live for a, in a place for a long time, you get used to how the water tastes. Is that just me? Yeah, I grew up in Medford, so of course we have the best water in the world. My grandparents lived out on Griffin Creek. It was well water. And it's not bad. It's different. It's just, you know, it's got all those extra minerals in there. It's so good for you. And, and, it's, and because it's coming to a well, it's not quite as cold as you're used to. You know, and you say, man, you, what, wish I could drink the water back in Medford. That, that's what David was doing. Oh, it would be so good to drink from that well. And it tasted so good. After shepherding all day, man, I could really taste it. So his three toughest homies, they broke through the enemy lines. They snuck to the well in Bethlehem. They got a drink of water, and they brought it back to David. Said, hey, we got your water for you. And David was like, you risked your life to give me a drink of water. Do you, know what, do you remember the story? What did he do with it? He poured it out on the ground. There is no way I would drink this water that cost you your life, that could have cost you your life. And doesn't that seem offensive? But his men weren't offended by it. They were honored by it. They were honored. They got to serve him, not because they got to see the expression on his face when he drank from that cool bucket of water. They got to serve him, and they got to experience together the mutual sacrifice of what it looks like to pour it out. Eternal life today is a life of rejoicing, but be careful. It's a life of rejoicing when we take the cup of everything we really, really hope Jesus lets us rejoice in and pour it out and say, I'm going to rejoice in serving others. Some of us have lived our entire Christian life, and we've never experienced that joy. We've wondered where it comes from. We're not sure what it's like. And it may be, I'm not saying it is, it may be because most of our Christian life has been focused on our Christian life. It might be that we need to turn the focus outward and say, you know what, I'm going to worry a little bit less about me and a lot more about others and see where Christ take you. Joy is in Christ. Joy is with Christ. It is all Jesus, all the time. It's not go to church so that I can have joy at work and have fun in the real world. The question is, how do I have joy in Christ in the body of believers? How do I have joy in Christ at home, at work, 
wherever I might be. Joy is Christ holy and completely. Now, I've got to be honest with you before we wrap it up with just a couple of application points is this. None of this stuff works if for you Jesus is just something you need to sort of make everything else in life better. So this only this idea here of what the Bible is trying to communicate is Christ as the end of our life and the whole of our life. If the idea here is to have a pretty decent life and then just take some Jesus fairy dust and sprinkle it across the top and that just gives it that pop, takes it up to the next level, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about flushing the life that would, would serve our interest and saying only, what is Christ in my life? And you might say, well, that's kind of extreme. Does it seem kind of extreme? If, if it doesn't seem extreme, you're not hearing me, right? But remember what Jesus said. I'm going to take up my... Those who would follow me need to take up their cross daily. Or what Paul says in Romans chapter 15, the resurrection had better be true. Otherwise, why did I fight wild beasts in Ephesus? And why to serve you, uh, believers in Corinth, I die every day. Meaning he wakes up every day and says, I'm not going to get anything I want today. It's an actual dying to self and say, what do the people in Corinth need? And so it is kind of extreme. The question is, is Jesus worth it? Of course he is. The question is whether or not we believe it. Eternal life today is a life of obedience. How do you limit your obedience to Jesus? How do you limit your obedience to Christ? Maybe you welcome sin in your life, and you say, well, I would never welcome sin in your life. There's a couple of ways you could do that. Uh, you could do this. Uh, and no, nobody here would do this. For the folks who couldn't make it today, they can watch that on YouTube. I will do a couple of good things because I know I've got some things this week I'm going to do that are bad. And I want on balance, I want sort of on balance for the good to outweigh the bad. Okay? So, and you're saying, well, I would never do that. I'm a believer. But see, you don't do that. You say, I'm saved by grace alone. I just live by Christ according to works. Is I, I feel bad about my Christian life when I do something bad. I feel good when I do something good. So what I want to do is, on balance, sort of weigh those things out. Eternal life today, in terms of obedience, is simply saying, I want to eliminate those things by God's grace that I know are wrong. And, and the first thing you need to do is acknowledge there's a couple of things in your life. <laughs> I'm being generous. There's a couple of things in your life that you know they're just wrong. And you hold on to them, uh, and it's time to say, you know what, that's got to be gone. And the way we do that is through repentance. So how do we limit obedience? What are those things God has called you to do and to serve others? And are, we say there just isn't enough time to do that. When my circumstances change, I'll be able to invest more in the lives of others, either in your home, in your church, or in your community. Let me just be honest with you. There will never be time. I've met a couple of people in our church who have retired. I know. You look at this group, you say, no one here is retired. Are you all in college? You're welcome. Yeah, I talk to these retired folks. The problem is they got no time. No, seriously, ask somebody that you know is retired. Now, you'd better really make sure you know they're retired. Otherwise, you look retired. What? Okay. Um, so if you're saying, you know what, when the kids get raised, or, you know, when the kids get out of college, you know, when I finally uh, get to the, the winter part of my career and I'm moving towards retirement, you know, then I'm going to have all kinds of time. No, it won't. you won't. I'm just telling you, you won't. You will have time to serve the Lord when you say, I'm going to make time to serve the Lord. And the question is, am I going to serve and worship Christ out of obedience 
or is my life going to be primarily geared to my priorities? Eternal life is a life of harmony. What valid gripes do you have that you need to just not worry about? Meaning, these are real deals. These, I'm not saying they're not, in, they're not valid. I'm not saying the person isn't wrong or whatever your issue is isn't an actual issue. Now, there's some things in relational community you need to express to others. There's a whole bunch of other things that are valid, cogent, meaningful gripes that you have. They're annoying. They shouldn't be that way. Somebody should take care of it. And, and how many of those things do you just need to say, you know what, I think I can be cool with it. I would suggest most of the gripes that we have that are valid, the world will continue spinning on, our ac- on its axis if, if we just say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about it. How many valid gripes do I need to let go of in our homes, especially in the body of Christ? Things will be fine if everything doesn't go according to our individual plans. Eternal life today is a life of rejoicing. Where does our joy come from? Do we find ourselves annoyed that God just simply refuses to give us those things that we have informed him on a routine basis would give us joy? You ever get frustrated with God? We have informed him, God, here are the things that I need to experience joy in you, and he just simply refuses to get on board. Where does our joy come from? What the Bible is going to do over and over again is remind us our joy is going to be rooted in our relationship with Christ. It's not going to come out of the circumstances of this world. It's not going to come out of the the stuff of our life. Our joy is going to be connected with the person of Christ, experience his grace over and over. 